action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly pro-movie pop culture podcast. I'm Oscar Dahl. Uh, I'm here with my friend Matthew Knutson. And uh, this is uh, as excited as I'm going to get for a podcast. And I guarantee, Matt, that you are even more excited as you are our resident Christopher Nolan expert. And uh, I'll kick it to you as we kick off our Christopher Nolan oeuvre. I mean, this one is probably painfully on brand for me. Certain uh, recent guests, of the, you know, friends of the podcast have roll, rolled their eyes a little bit when I told them that this was going to be the next subject we would cover because it's just a, it's so obvious to the point of uh, maybe being a little bit off-putting. But I really like the idea of ripping off this Band-Aid that we probably were going to eventually get to anyway and to coincide it with a film that is not only my most anticipated film of this year, it may end up being the movie that saves movie theaters. <laughs> depending on what happens in July if we actually can start going back to movie theaters this is the, the studio Warner Brothers has put this stake in the ground and they haven't moved it things could very well change tomorrow but if if at all everything everything goes to plan and we do go back to movie theaters in July this th- this film could very well play by itself in movie theaters for like three months and uh, as a result it's going to be a major cultural touchstone and part of the cultural conversation and so I thought all right we're, we're going to get around to Nolan at some point let's just do it now because it seems so apropos considering that this is just literally the film that we're you know kind of counting the days until we may or may not get a chance to see it you know nolan is also a guy that i've spent a lot of time in my academic life studying writing about making video essays about anybody who was kind enough to listen to my solo pod last week and and thank you for the three of you who did knows that i am really really dedicated to this guy's take on narrative and narrative is kind of a of an academic pet project for me. I am, I, you know, I always go back to your favorite Roger Ebert quote. It's not about, you know, it's not about what the movie's about. It's how it's about what it's about, right? That's why I don't, that's why I'm famously, famously, that's why I, I always <laughs> say I don't care about spoilers because I really don't care where the movie is going. I'm interested in how it gets there. And so that's why I'm so just fascinated by this guy's films, particularly his late period films, because he's getting weirder and weirder and more experimental. And, you know, in its own way, Dunkirk, his most recent film might be his weirdest movie narratively right even though it's kind of thought of as a relatively uh, mainstream movie that was nominated for best picture and was a big hit it's a very twisty very weird film and i love that so much about his stuff it really speaks to me you could reductively refer to me as as you know a nolan bro or whatever but it's i'm I'm really much more interested in the critical study of his filmography and that's what that's the direction i wanted to approach this from we're not here to talk about how awesome heath ledger is as the joker although he is um we're here to sort of like try to 
discuss and um, dissect the main and recurring themes, utilities in his films. I hope. Yes, that's the idea. I mean, there is a lot to chew on here. And, you know, you can count on one hand the number of filmmakers in the history of cinema, really, that are the biggest box office draws. And they do, they get those draws with original pieces of cinema, and they're also critically acclaimed, awards-worthy type movies. I mean, it's basically in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, it's this guy and James Cameron. I mean, true auteurs who are involved in the story and the script and are doing experimental weird things, like you said. Again, he, he is kind of the last big bankable guy that is consistently making blockbuster movies at this point that aren't franchise films. And he's also one of the last, well, yeah, and ironically, we're going to talk about his only franchise films today. Uh, which to me sort of feel like outliers in his filmography in their own way. And that's why I'm kind of glad we're covering them first. But yes, I mean, he has cultivated a brand. He he has truly built himself into a brand over the last 20 years. And it's really exciting and, and paramount in his interests and in his, you know, things that are specific to him is he's one of the last remaining celluloid guys. He's, he's one of the, you know, he and Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, these guys are dying off. They're not literally dying, but their interest in celluloid is, is dying off every Every day and and Nolan is one of the last guys who just claw the celluloid from my cold dead hands, guys. <laughs> and it's really, I mean, it's it's exciting. Even to me. Go, going so far as terrorizing his crew by making them film in IMAX for extended <laughs> periods of time, right? Yes, I mean he's he's a guy who has all of the resources, you know, he has all of the money in the, in the Warner Brothers coffer at his disposal and he has chosen what I feel is a very noble endeavor, which is to say look, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get access to these resources, I'm gonna fucking shoot this on the biggest possible format I can. Like, I'm gonna take that Warner Brothers movies, but that Warner Brothers money and you're gonna fucking see it on the movie screen. And I just find that really noble and really exciting. Sort of famously, when he finished The Dark Knight Rises, he invited a bunch of his, of his Hollywood cronies to the IMAX theater in um, yeah, right by Warner Brothers, actually in Burbank at the Universal City Walk, which is the last real IMAX theater in LA. And he showed them the first 10 minutes of The Dark Knight Rises. And then afterwards, he's like, guys, you are movers and shakers. You guys, you know, you guys have power. Please, please, please insist on shooting on film. Otherwise, it's going to die. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how many of them actually um, <laughs> honored his wishes, unfortunately. Well, it's easy for Christopher Nolan to say when he has unlimited budgets, right? Yeah. And he keeps his, he just keeps making hits you know like it's pretty unprecedented to go basically 10 for 10 here as i was gonna say he's he's 100 success rate he does it at a pretty workmanlike clip i mean he's making a movie every two to three years which is about as fast as you can make the types of movies that he makes. Yeah, the turnaround, the Dark Knight Inception, Dark Knight Rises turnaround, you know, basically two years apart, considering the scale of those three movies. I mean, then Interstellar, right, on the, on the, although I guess Interstellar was three years later. But um, but those three movies, to come back to back like that, considering how big those movies are, is, is pretty insane. Yeah, the and dude's a stud. He, you know, he famously also doesn't do second unit. He he only does one unit, which means he's literally there directing every single shot. He doesn't he doesn't shop. He doesn't uh, farm stuff out to you know second unit crews or second unit directors. He does everything himself. He's on set for every single shot, which is kind of an unprecedented thing considering the scale of the films that he makes. And he does so while being a seemingly likable chap. He's been married to his um his producing partner since they were. I think they met 
met in college. They've, you know, they've been together for 25 years or something. I think they have four children. You never hear anything about the guy's personal life, you know, like he, he really keeps it low key. Apparently he doesn't own a cell phone. Seems to be a really sort of down to earth family guy. Very, very good father from, from reports. He and his wife, Emma, just live in LA and seem to live a pretty normal life. And then every two years he goes off and makes basically the biggest movie. <laughs> he just keeps making the biggest <laughs> movie of all time every time out of the gates. And it seems to me that Tenet is going to be, um, will be no exception. I mean, I think Tenet, I'm looking at 200, I'm looking at a $205 million budget. Okay, so Dark Knight Rises was about 230. So not his most expensive movie, but $200 million for a non-franchise film, that doesn't happen very often. He's one of the few well, that- people who can, who can marshal that. Yeah, and that's sort of been his standard budget, it seems, for a while now. It has to be around what Dunkirk was and what Interstellar was. Yeah, so here, let's just go through them real quick. So following $6,000 budget, $250,000 return, not too shabby. Memento, $9 million budget, $40 million return. That'll work. Insomnia, $46 million budget, $114 million return. Then he makes a big jump. Batman Begins, $150 million, $374 million return. The Prestige, he takes a step back. Smaller movie, $40 million, $110 million worldwide box office. Dark Knight, $185, big jump up, and uh, you know returns a billion dollars. Uh, Inception, $160 million budget, and a worldwide box office of $830 million. Yeah, what a phenomenon Inception was. Dark Knight Rises, $230 million budget, and it also makes over a billion. Interstellar, $165 million budget, worldwide box office 676 dunkirk 150 million dollar budget worldwide box office 527 so yes his his budgets have have skyrocketed of late but he just keeps returning on warner brothers investment you know like he's a good bet he's just a very very good bet and so that's why they always back up the brinks truck for him i mean we'll get into batman here soon enough but again it's this secret sauce that i've talked about with james cameron but your average moviegoer probably has a vague idea of who christopher nolan is they wouldn't be able to rattle off all his movies he's not a public figure there's just something about the movies he makes that are both critically satisfying analytically satisfying but also extremely crowd pleasing and interesting to people who are you know the the movie populace now is sort of engendered towards franchise movies and things they're familiar with and it takes a lot to get them into the into the theater but he creates this kind of spectacle and something new and maybe harkening back to something old with the you know celluloid stuff uh, that gets people in the seats and while I have issues with you know some of his films and we'll get to those but I mean the guy is unique especially in this day and age and and that's why I was despite the obviousness of it pretty fucking stoked to uh, get into this whole thing plus he's also just devastatingly handsome like he's just a <laughs> fucking good looking guy he's got that just so just incredibly handsome head of hair he's got great head of hair he does yeah, have an incredible head of hair his speaking voice is also just very very melodious this might be a rhetorical question but but i want you to chew on it a little bit is the effect of the dark knight trilogy on the motion picture industry writ large the studio motion picture industry writ large is the net a positive effect or a negative effect and by that i mean does the success of these three films and the sort of cultural importance of these three films Batman Begins the Dark Knight the Dark Knight Rises did that was that a good thing or did that set us up for the comic bookification and the franchiseification of mainstream cinema over the last 10 years let's call it 
12 years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Marvel Studios thing was going to happen regardless of Batman Begins, I think, if you look at that timing, right? Okay. Because Iron Man comes out the same year Dark Knight comes out. Yes, and the Avengers comes out the same year as the Dark Knight Rises. Exactly. So was would the production of Iron Man have changed with the with the direction the uh, of the way the uh, you know Marvel Studios went with their franchise or how they wanted to build it out have changed if Batman Begins didn't exist I I doubt that that's the case however you look at Iron Man and Batman Begins very similar stories to kick off those two franchises right sure just look at how it's how the narrative plays out who the main character is, uh, so on and so forth. But in terms of grounding the superhero genre and making it less Batman Forever and more sort of Logan Jokery, yeah, I, I do think there is an effect there, and I don't think that's necessarily negative. There haven't been, despite all the talk about the sort of adult superhero movies, there haven't been that many, right? You look at Logan and the sort of, I don't know, the the rest of the DC universe have tried to emulate what Christopher Nolan has done. But my suspicion is that these franchises were going to make movies within that franchise no matter what. Mm -hmm. So if Nolan had an effect on the tone, so be it. It doesn't matter. You can have a fun Batman Forever type movie, right? That's kind of what the Marvel franchise is. It's, It's not a dark sinister brooding philosophical tone that that the dark knight trilogy has so just going back to your ebert quote it's not necessarily like what's what it's about i mean it's just it's how you execute that direction so i don't i mean would there be fewer superhero movies if if nolan hadn't come along and done batman begins i don't know i think that ship was already out in the harbor fair enough i'm very very curious to see how the Matt Reeves Batman movie ends up working out. And it is, it's kind of interesting that that was the first film that Robert Pattinson hopped onto after working with Nolan on the upcoming Tenet. I, I have a fear that the Matt Reeves Batman movie is going to just double down on the sort of brooding darkness or whatever, you know, however you want to reductively refer to it, you know, whatever code Nolan cracked with these films. I'm afraid that the Batman is just going to end up doubling down on that, which I don't think is the move. Trying to sort of view into Nolan's lane, I think has been a mistake. And guys like Zack Snyder or um, the oh, guy who did uh, Fury Dave, David. and stuff, David Ayer. Yeah, I just, th- them trying to kind of recreate this thing that's so specific to Nolan, I think has been a has been a big mistake. And the films in the DCEU or whatever you want to call it have been really, really spotty post-Dark Knight. And it's actually even kind of odd to refer to the Dark Knight trilogy as part of the DCEU, even though they, they most certainly are. I mean, the DC logo is right there at the top. It's just there's something else entirely like there's there's some they're so specific they're so they have so much personality of their own and that's part of why i was really excited to start this series off by talking about them because we had committed to sort of covering his oeuvre in a in a non-linear fashion uh, to to mm-hmm. honor the man yep <laughs> it, it wasn't our original tension but you floated last week you're like hey can we do batman first and i was like yes absolutely yes that makes <laughs> complete sense for us to just come right out of the gate with his with his franchise trilogy with his most successful films mm-hmm. and i honestly had really seen any of them in probably over a year. I definitely hadn't seen Batman Begins in probably at least four or five years. Another reason that I was excited to cover them first is because they actually rank pretty low in terms of my Nolan ranking. When I think about the Batman movies, I, I'm sorry, the Dark Knight
Dark Knight movies, they are not amongst my favorite Christopher Nolan films. I mean, The mm-hmm. Dark Knight is probably right about in the middle of my ranking, but The Dark Knight Rises and Batman Begins are pretty close to the bottom. Now, this is a guy for whom I believe he's never made a bad film, and I've liked or loved all 10 of his movies. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, somewhat neither here nor there. But yeah, The Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises, to me, are pretty low in my Nolan ranking. I mean, going back to what you're saying about everyone trying to emulate what Nolan did here, is I do think Batman Begins, especially, suffers in retrospect because so many people have tried to do it since, right? The 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 novelty of it has worn off a little bit. And so what what was at the time so new and refreshing and invigorating about seeing a superhero movie like this uh is is no longer there really right yeah you look at todd phillips joker right yes please and i am curious to see where matt reeves batman falls in regards to joker because that is that's a movie you like you love maybe and i kind of hated kind of wouldn't use the word love but i definitely respected it that movie's no fun right And despite how dark and sinister the Dark Knight trilogy can be at times, it is still fun, right? It's a fun movie to watch. There are moments of levity. The cast is, uh, they're having a good time, you can tell. Uh, Where something like Joker is just sort of a dirge. And I, I do worry that the Batman will be like that. And that filmmakers have looked at the Dark Knight trilogy and taken the wrong sort of lessons from it. I think that's the perfect way to put it, is that they've learned the wrong lessons from the things that Nolan was um, doing in a very kind of unprecedented way with these three movies. I mean, it really is special, uh, you know, his take. Obviously, is a little bit clunky out of the gates. Uh, I find Batman Begins to be one of his one of his clunkier movies, but, you know, it's his fourth movie. He's still kind of getting his sea legs, especially considering how much bigger of a film it was than anything he had done up to that point. And then he really, really finds his groove in the dark night which i think obviously almost everybody would agree is is the pinnacle of the series and then he kind of learns the wrong lessons from himself i think when it comes to the dark night rises <laughs> and he just bloats it cr- crazily out of proportion. i mean i just literally got done watching it again about 20 minutes ago <laughs> i defend that movie and i will still defend that movie and i really like that movie but it is big old bloated mess in a lot of ways i mean it's it's just throwing way too much at you i mean it's it's one of those situations where it's like they say you know before you leave the house turn around and whatever the first thing you catch in the mirror is you should take off like that movie needs to like take off three or four <laughs> different pieces of jewelry right I've, I've grown to enjoy that movie more and more as time has passed dark knight rises but we'll we'll get to that sure so but batman begins so batman begins obviously was something that they were trying to get off the ground for a long time uh, darren aronofsky famously came very close to making batman year one which is a film in an alternate universe i would absolutely have loved to have seen that is a lane that aronofsky never explored like there was a real sliding door scenario where that guy became a much more mainstream filmmaker if he made a franchise movie and for whatever reason it, it didn't work out and as a result uh, he's kind of just doubled down on the weirdness all Noah all Noah's aside but I really <laughs> would have liked I would have been interested in seeing that so you know obviously this is a reaction to what Joel Schumacher was doing with Batman Forever and and Batman and Robin both of which were hits but you know those movies were still I mean, people still made fun of them at the time, even though people went to go see them in droves. So this is a real like market correction, right? We got to go. We got to go all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum. And Nolan was the right guy in the right place with the right take on this material. Famously, he's not really a big comic book guy. Apparently, this was just like one of those projects that taken meetings at Warner Brothers after the success of Insomnia. This was just something that came across his desk. And they were like, yeah, what do you think about this? And he he had a take. 
and uh, and they bought it. Do, do you know much more about his... I was trying to dig into it, but you know, it seemed like it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Huge leap from what he'd been doing. He had not done anything big action set PC ever. It was just, it's interesting that A, that he was a guy they approached. B, that hit whatever his take was was accepted by, by the studio. Uh, and C, that he'd want to do it in the, in the first place. It seems to me that his interest lies in the idea of working in this fantastical environment, but doing everything in his power to make it tangible, right? Like Nolan's mm-hmm. whole thing is, you know, practical effects, ground level. The whole point of this is like, how would this actually look? How would this work if this guy with millions and millions of dollars of his parents' money that he can just burn through... How would he physically do this? How would he build out the Batcave? How would he make the suit? Like the the inclusion of the Lucius Fox character, the the Morgan Freeman character, who I'm not I'm not I don't know if that's comic book canon or not, but it's an absolute masterstroke to give him like his cue, right? Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, of course. This is the guy, this is the the scientist guy who can give him all the gear and help him build all this stuff out and you know, also keep his secret. Like that's that that might be the movie's you know, secret weapon, pardon the pun. Like I was struck by the other night when I was rewatching Batman Begins, like, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot. The, the fucking the Morgan Freeman stuff is is really smart and really narratively useful. And he's so wise. <laughs> oh cool. yeah, I mean obviously I hang on his every word as well. <laughs> and that's the other thing about this movie is the the roster, the cast of this film is unbelievably deep. And when Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman is seventh build or whatever, it's it's clear. I mean, Nolan wasn't just leveling up in terms of his budget. He was really leveling up in terms of the cast he was able to marshal for a project like this. That being said, he was just coming off a movie where he directed three Oscar winners, yeah. all of whom are fantastic, <laughs> and that was only his third movie. So going into Batman Begins, I mean, he's got a lot of decisions to make. And I forgot how much they actually delved into the origin story. I, I seem to remember that it, they they blew past it in a way that other Batman origins hadn't in the past. But it really is sort of the first half is the origin story. And there's a lot of work to be done. And I sort of wish, and it suffers sort of the same thing that Iron Man suffers, as much as I love that movie too, which is you really have to speed up the villain plot in the movie. So it seems like two sort of discordant films in the end because you spend so much time at the outset establishing who this character is. That said, I do think this is the first Batman movie ever to really attempt to delve into why this guy is the way he is um, and not just give some sort of bullshit, oh, his parents were killed thing, but like get into the psychology of this dude who's using his fear as a way to, you know, strike fear in others and all that shit. I, th- I think the first half is is better. I agree. I do kind of wish that the origin stuff was a little tamped down that he, and he was, he gave himself more room to work with to flesh out an actual, you know, Batman story. I, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion, but I actually think all three of these movies kind of lose steam at the end. I actually find their endings to all be maybe my least favorite part of these three films. Um, I think you're right on the first two. I think Dark Knight Rises is a good ending. Very good ending. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's bad. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of like my least favorite part of it. I'm much more enamored by the first half of this movie, especially because the first half is where he gets to really play with a lot more of the nonlinear stuff. Like he gets to screw with the chronology and juxtapose young Bruce Wayne with younger Bruce Wayne, if you will. Like he's, ba- he's doing like three different timelines simultaneously, right? <laughs> he's, doing, yeah. he's doing really young Bruce, 
Wayne before his parents die. Then he's doing like teenage, maybe early 20s college Bruce Wayne. And then he's doing present tense Bruce Wayne, who's he's 30. He turns 30. He has a 30th birthday party in this. That's right. So you're basically talking like 10 year old Bruce Wayne, 20 year old Bruce Wayne and 30 year old Bruce Wayne. And you're exploring those those timelines simultaneously, at least for the first 30 minutes of the movie, which I think is really effective. Matt, what would you say? Like, what's is there a big idea in this movie? Like, is there are there some thematic elements that you take out of this that sort of, you know, push through to the other two movies or I'm glad you teed me up for that because this is exactly what I want to talk about. I I think these three movies shouldn't be called the Dark Knight trilogy. These three movies should be called the Gotham trilogy. I I think what he's principally interested in here, or at least what he does most effectively, is that he's really just using the Batman thing as a way to get into kind of like a political study of this broken city. It's Mm -hmm. just something they continue to go back to, right? The soul of Gotham City, the soul of Gotham City. And he is much more consumed with like politicians and mobsters and systems and and police bureaucracy like he gets way more into that kind of stuff in a, in ways that the previous Batman movies hadn't up to this point. And I'm not a I'm not a reader of the comic books. Maybe that stuff is always prevalent in the comic books. But I was very struck rewatching these again at how incredibly political these movies are. I mean, for for a guy who claims to not be a political filmmaker and even claims that he wasn't he didn't have political aspirations when he made these movies these movies are intensely political not not, necess- not necessarily always successfully but they're asking a lot of really interesting questions and i was out cruising around uh, going for a jog uh, earlier this week and i was like all right well if these are political films then what politically are they principally interested in individually and and here's my red hot take so i'm going to drop this on you like a molotov cocktail here we go batman begins is about fascism the Dark Knight is about anarchy, and The Dark Knight Rises is about communism. Okay, yeah, I, I, I like that. I mean, okay. You can so, also mix and match those. You can say The Dark Knight Rises is, is in its own way about fascism as well. I've looked to these movies for political takes over and over again. I think our Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises podcasts went, went pretty deep into what they quote-unquote meant. And so I'm going to get back to your takes in one second, but let me read this quote. But this is Nolan talking about the politics Uh, specifically for Dark Knight Rises of these movies. I've had as many conversations with people who have seen the film the other way around. We throw a lot of things against the wall to see if it sticks. We put a lot of of interesting questions in the air, but that's simply a backdrop for the story. What we're really trying to do is show the cracks of society, show the conflicts that someone would try to wedge open. We're going to get wildly different interpretations of what the film is supporting and not supporting, but it's not doing any of those things. It's just telling a story. If you're saying, have you made a film that's supposed to be criticizing Occupy Wall Street movement? Well, obviously that's not true. Okay, so Matt, do you not believe Christopher Nolan in what he's saying here? Or does it not matter? I, I read the exact same quote uh, you know, on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, and he's he's right up front about it. He is, you know, he did not have political a- aspirations. But how can you not read these films? How can you not at least examine the politics at play? I mean, famously, when The Dark Knight came out, a lot of people were referring to it as a right wing film, as as something that was um, sympathetic to George W. Bush's approach to the war on terror, right? The nanny state about uh, the Patriot Act, you know, all the stuff at the end, the, the whole conversation that Morgan Freeman and Christian Bale have in terms of, like, this is wrong, this is unethical, like, you're spying on people. Yeah, but it's for the greater good, right? All right, I need to find this man. So like I can wield this power because I need to find this man, but too much power for one person. I mean, it, it gets into some really heady stuff there at the end. And hey, I just refuse to believe that, that that stuff was just incidental to Nolan, right? I don't think it's right wing. I think it's my take on I'm Dark not Knight. saying that's the right reading of it. I'm just saying there was a lot of talk about that when the movie came out. I do think it mirrors the Iraq war and just our Middle East incursions. Like I think uh, Batman is is the United States and, and Joker is uh, Gotham's 
Middle East and Joker is uh, ISIS. Terrorist, yeah. He's he's an agent of chaos. He he can't be bargained with. That has been created by the vigilantism. There are ways to look at it that, that make things coherent. But I think specifically with Dark Knight Rises, I do like your communism take. I'm going to need to think about that. But all the Occupy Wall Street stuff, I think is kind of bogus because it doesn't really cohere in any real way. Plus the timeline doesn't work. Occupy Wall Street was in, happened I think in t- like late 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have already been shooting this. They, I think they were actually done shooting this by the time the Occupy Wall Street thing even happened. So I know it's very convenient and we all kind of like want to look at The Dark Knight Rises as Nolan's take on Occupy Wall Street, but I think it was just a coincidence. Like, I mean, maybe he's sort of sort of like prescient or something or, or saw which way the wind was blowing, but I, I think that the whole Occupy Wall Street thing actually is bullshit if you look at the timeline. It's definitely bullshit. And I, I think I even saw a quote from Christian Bale marveling at like, oh, isn't it crazy that he uh, foresaw Occupy Wall Street? The intentionality, the decision to move Gotham City to New York, it just seems crazy, right? Unless you were <laughs> yeah. trying to connect it to uh, the, the fact I was really well, struck. Well, it's not all you New like, no, right. a lot of it's like, L.A., um, but no no Chicago, weirdly. Yeah, Pittsburgh, um, you know, London, of course. But it's weird that the first two films are so directly tied to Chicago in, in a way that very few mainstream films, you know, outside of the, maybe the John Hughes canon are. I mean, that, those movies are kind of love letters to Chicago in their own way, which Nolan has said is sort of like his kind of his adopted hometown. He was born in London, but I think he, he spent a lot of his childhood in Chicago because that's where his dad, I think his dad was American and his mom's British. So those movies are so Chicago centric. It's, it's really jarring for them to just completely turn their back on Chicago. I don't know if it was a tax revenue thing or what, but the fact that they set the Dark Knight Ride, that they shot the Dark Knight Rises so much in New York and they make very, very little attempt to try to disguise the the city of New York. They're just like sweeping shots of Manhattan Island. They're unmistakable. There, he's, he is making some sort of statement there, right? Is it a post 9-11 statement? Is it just because he needed all the bridges, you know, because he's got to blow the bridges up so that he can isolate <laughs> people in Gotham? I, I don't know. I think it's a very weird, it's a very weird decision that he made to do it that way. It's jarring. I find it jarring. Yeah, it's jarring. I, I just don't, I mean, I think he's, he brings the League of Shadows back from Batman Begins, right? And their whole ethos is once an empire gets too big and fat, you know, all the rich people are too rich and all this shit. It just needs to be reset back to zero, right? Like that's that's their whole thing to upset unfair order of things and give power, quote unquote power back to the people. So I, I'm not sure he's saying anything different about the plan or, you know, Bane's motivations than he was saying about Liam Neeson, Ra's al Ghul's motivations in, in Batman Begins. So I, I don't really see any sort of political point of view that coheres for me in Dark Knight Rises. But I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, especially about your communism take. I I wish I was nearly enough of a a student of, um, you know, political sciences that I could really break it down. I I just think, you know, it's a movie that's obviously very interested in sort of discussing the ideas of the 1%, you know, quote unquote, returning the power to the people. Big montages where they're pulling, you know, the decadent uh, members of Gotham out of their penthouses. And, and at one point, uh, Juno Temple and Anne Hathaway go into um, go into this beautiful palatial apartment. And she's like, this was someone's home. And Juno Temple says, yeah, now it's everyone's home. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the movie is particularly interested in sort of like exploring a, a little bit of the hypocrisy that might come with idealistic attempts at, at communism. Is Bane's plan it to re, you know restore the power to the people or whatever is it is it what is it motivated by is he actually a fascist dictator who's going to um, promise the idea of communism to the masses while he's also simultaneously forcing their hand with a um, uh, with a nuclear 
the nuclear weapon at the same I mean, time. It, right? The whole like, thing's kind of undermined by the fact that he's he's going to witness their death imminently right and he's aware that the bomb's gonna go off and, and then you find out that he's also just a figurehead he's just the muscle for um for talia al ghul um which is one of the clunkier things about the film i mean one of my least favorite aspects of the dark knight rises is that it definitely feels a lot more like a sequel to batman begins than a sequel to the dark knight dark knight yeah. really feels like the outlier in the trilogy where the dark knight rises is a clear a direct sequel to batman begins and i don't really like that about it because they're my i guess it's because they're my least two favorite films in the in the trilogy you know at the same time when Heath Ledger passed away they really had to change their take because apparently um, the original idea was to bring the Joker back I mean he's he, you know he's alive at the end of the Dark Knight so yeah. they really had to pivot when he when he passed away and it you know Nolan kind of um, dragged drug his feet he was very kind of ambivalent about returning to the series after Heath Ledger passed away and I think it was only once he settled on his Tale of Two Cities French Revolution idea that he actually got activated by this is it about communism well it's certainly about, you know, revolution, about the idea of revolution, the promise of revolution, and about inciting this revolution in the city. I I think my biggest issue, the clunkiest part, the the most unsuccessful part of the film for me, is the idea that America's greatest city could get completely isolated and shut off, and the entire police force could get trapped underground. It's just, it's too much for me. (laughs) I know we're living in a comic book universe here, but can you imagine if just like the city of New York, although I guess guess in its own way, because of the pandemic, the city of New York is, is a little bit cut off at the moment, but I just can't can't imagine the United States government just sort of like turning its back on its greatest city just because uh, you know the police were trapped underground. It's it's kind of preposterous, actually. It's well, there's a lot of preposterous things about that movie, and some in Dark Knight <laughs> yes. too. I mean, the, the the whole underground jail is silly too. That's an easy jump. I mean, all those guys would try to make that jump constantly, right? Try three or four oh, times. Oh, the the. The leap, yeah, without the leap rope. Of faith, yeah, it's pretty silly. It's silly, but it it actually might be my favorite part of the movie. Like, and you know, Hans Zimmer is doing a lot of the a lot of the legwork here. But on the on the soundtrack, it's the 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 track is called "Why Do We Fall?" Question mark. The wise old uh, inmate tells him that the way to make the jump is without the rope. Then fear will find you again. It's a wonderful bookend to how much fear plays a part in Batman Begins, and the idea yeah. that fear can be a motivating factor for you to be able to do good and to bring the bats back out like it's it's a really it's just a fucking invigorating sequence again a lot of it is Hans Zimmer's incredible score my definitely my favorite scene in the movie and honestly might be one of my favorite scenes in the entire trilogy getting to see it on the on the IMAX screen all of a sudden the image becomes huge when he starts crawling up the wall and then he makes the jump and everybody cheers like it's a it's a fucking bravura Nolan moment you know it's really yeah. really effective deeply silly I agree but it's a it's an incredibly effect it's a goosebump inducing scene for me yeah and I, I like how many times they uh, show Batman falling during that time like he fails I think three times before making it which that might play into the uh, bloated running time of the film but that's fine uh Matt should we go back to Batman Begins put a put a bow tie on that before we move to Dark Knight one of the most interesting things for me in sort of the greater scope of Nolan's filmography is that I kind of have the sense of all the Batman movies that he needed these movies to be able to make his later big budget movies like this was his sort of boot camp in big budget film 
filmmaking. And Batman Begins was the beginning of that because Memento, Insomnia, I mean, there's obviously nothing in following a $6,000 movie, but nothing in terms of big action set pieces, nothing in terms of the scope that he's dealing with here. And so for him to come on to Batman Begins, and you can see the growth between Batman Begins and Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Him learning his craft here, A, I just wonder like how much we take that for granted in terms of his growth and what he ended up becoming as a filmmaker. B, like, is that something that he was consciously thinking by taking on this property? Like, oh, I can learn to make, you know, movies that I'm, I'm envisioning and maybe didn't have the, the capability of before. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think it was, it was him cultivating a relationship with Warner Brothers, which has been his home since Insomnia. He's never made a, a film for anybody else besides, um, besides Warner Brothers. And that's, that's kind of a big deal, you know, that he has, that he has a home and that they support him and he's just continuing to make money for them. And so the idea that he would take on a project like Batman Begins the character of Batman or comic books in general don't sound like they were an important part of his childhood. It wasn't some sort of wish fulfillment. I think it was exactly what you're suggesting, that it was like a boot camp. It was like, here, let's let's see if I can do this. And if I do this and, and, and I can be successful at this, not only will I get to make more personal projects, I'll be able to teach myself how to work on this level. You know, maybe with the exception of the prestige, He's just been working on this huge scale, this huge canvas ever since. I mean, Nolan exclusively makes big movies, big in scope, big in budget, big in ideas. And Batman Begins, for all of its flaws, is obviously a really important stepping stone for him. I'm just so impressed by his and David Goyer's interest in intellectualizing a lot of this stuff. Even the the Ducard, the uh, Ra's al Ghul stuff at the end when he comes back and talks about what the League of Shadows is doing and that they, you know, we burn down London and we have to, like, it's probably a little bit rushed and it might be a little bit clunky, but it is pretty heady and interesting. And the fact that they weren't just sort of like resting on their laurels based on the fact that they know we really want to see cool sweeping shots of Batman flying through the sky, that they actually um, had some intellectual skin in the game. Mm-hmm. It just gives me so much respect for what the guy was interested in and how he decided to approach this. So yeah, the way he levels up post-Batman Begins is is pretty incredible. And the fact that he follows this up with the prestige on the way to the Dark Knight is another example of how this guy just wants to grow. He wants to get better. And like you said, he doesn't take very much time off between movies. It's clear he's still kind of hungry for this stuff, which I find so uh, inspiring. Let's talk a little bit about the, the legacy of Batman Begins, because there's one thing that I think is important, which is before this, and tell me if I'm wrong here. I can't remember a superhero movie dealing with shades of gray in terms of is our lead character, is our protagonist doing the right thing? Is he going too far? Do the villains have actually a good point here? This cloud hangs over all of the Batman movies, especially the second and third ones. Like, is Batman a actual good positive force in Gotham or in the world? Is what he's doing is it going to be a net positive or a net negative? When you add that weight to something, which is in the past and still most superhero movies, pretty binary, good is good, evil is evil, you have sort of a unspecified weight. It just adds a, a ton for the audience to think on and, and chew over. And it doesn't need to be you know sort of discussed straight on, even though it is occasionally. In terms of its legacy, there have been other movies that have dealt in the same way, but I mean, Batman's a pretty fucking great character to (laughs) discuss whether his actions are, you know, positive or negative. Yeah, I don't think you get to something like Captain America Civil War and the interesting sort of ethical questions that movie's asking without the Dark Knight trilogy. You certainly don't get to something like Thanos, although I guess Thanos was, you know, technically probably already established in comic books and stuff. The way that the Avengers movies start asking those interesting ethical questions in the later films, I think is a direct reaction to Dark Knight Trilogy asking, is this guy the hero? Did the environment that he's created 
by dint of his vigilantism, he, he, he created, he's now created this environment where characters like the Joker can show up and can um, wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. He, he's created a context now for Jokers and Banes based on uh, good intentions. And it's just, yeah. it's just interesting stuff to noodle. And, you know, the movie, these movies ask a lot of really interesting questions without providing particularly easy answers. Those are actually my favorite types of films. You know, I don't really need the movie to tell me how to feel or what to think, but I appreciate the fact that it's asking very provocative questions. Yeah, and I I think that is one of the great strengths of these movies too, is that there's no moralizing at any point. Nolan said in that quote, he's throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall, take what you will from it. You can still enjoy the movie without thinking about it if you so choose, but there are going to be these moral quandaries and philosophical arguments you can have with friends or yourself. Like I said, it just adds weight and significance to what otherwise would be a silly superhero movie. And something that Nolan and Goyer really commit to here, which I, I think is impressive and inspiring, is that they are just as interested in Bruce Wayne as they are in Batman. And I, and I feel like that's unique in the various uh, incarnations of this character. He is Bruce Wayne at least as often as he is as he is in Batman when I think back yeah. to the Tim Burton and the Joel Schumacher ones you're kind of just filling time until he gets back in the cowl right and a, and a lot of this is just, is you know based on the strength of casting somebody as strong as Christian Bale <laughs> with all due respect to Michael Keaton and George Clooney and Val Kilmer <laughs> Christian Bale is just one of the most accomplished and important actors of his generation and the idea of putting him at in this role at where he was at this point in his career you know coming off of American Psycho and stuff having been the child actor who had finally come of age and grown into a really impressive thespian it's it's the glue that holds the entire thing together and so as a result of having such a strong actor in that role you can lean a little more into the Bruce Wayne stuff and not feel like it's just extraneous filler before the next action scene right no and it's all interesting stuff I mean you're absolutely right if you look at the first you know quadrilogy of of Batman movies that came out the Bruce Wayne shit was extremely boring and unnecessary I feel like every scene was the audience wondering if oh he's finally going to be accused of being Batman like that was the only sort of source of tension in those scenes and like Dark Knight Rises Batman's barely in that movie yeah I mean he doesn't show up until almost the halfway point really yeah I mean I guess you could say the same thing about the first film but you know he has to become Batman before he can show up obviously Um, but you're right I mean that that again kind of reinforces my theory that these aren't really Batman movies so much as they are Gotham movies they're much more interested in just these systems and the you know the kind of hierarchy of these cities Nolan is clearly a guy who's very interested in in sort of like urban alienation and and the way that that living in a big city like this particularly one that is quote-unquote broken forces your hand in certain ways and breeds corruption and breeds the mob and you know there's so much of of batman begins of you know there's a lot of katie holmes you know driving christian bale around and like pointing out the homeless encampments and stuff i mean it's clearly interested in the idea of sort of urban rot right and Mm -hmm. that's why i think that these are really gotham city movies and i think nolan is attempting in all three of these movies obviously most successfully in the dark knight to um kind of riff on his hero michael mann's fascination slash obsession with um, you know metropolises, yeah, we we use this cliche all the time about the you know the city being being a character <laughs> in the movie. But if you look at something like Heat, it truly is a character. I mean, that movie is actually maybe more about the city of Los Angeles than it is about the characters inhabiting it. Clearly, he becomes empowered in the Dark Knight to, to be like, oh, I'm just gonna fucking riff on Heat. The opening scene of that of that film is obviously just a riff on Heat, down to the fact that William Fickner shows up. Well, I mean, that was his that was his template for Dark Knight. They you know they screened it for the crew 
crew, right? I mean, that, that's that's what he was working off of, and fuck, yeah, it works. Yeah, and and man is really he's he's really fascinated and activated by cities. Like he created the template for how people thought about the city of Miami for you know twenty years afterwards, right? And yeah. in its own way, Heat might be the ultimate LA movie, and Collateral is kind of like Heat Junior. And and he's another guy who's a Chicago guy, and obviously has made wonderful films that took place there that are you know where the city is clearly very much a character of its own. So yeah, I think Nolan's just particularly interested in power systems and economics, moral questions about justice versus revenge. And he's he's just more so than in any of his other films. That's why I keep coming back to this political idea that even if he did, even if it's unconscious on his part, these films can't, it's, it's hard to not read them politically because they're so interested in how societies function when they're under duress the way that Gotham City always is, right? Yeah, I mean, going back to what you said earlier about Nolan taking this idea of Batman, this obviously insane, unrealistic thing, and trying to ground it as much as possible and just saying, okay, theoretically, what would happen if we unleashed this thing into a city? That makes sense if you take all of these political undertones as, you know, I'm not going to come to any conclusions here. I'm just throwing this out there. Like, what would happen? Let's play out the string. What would happen if we introduce this millionaire vigilante into the system and what would the cause and effect be and that's sort of what he's interested in like this would happen in the mayor's office this would happen in the district attorney's office this is what it would happen you know to the police chief so i mean just just pulling the levers and see what would happen and maybe there are some human elements that are inevitable corruption and revolt and backlash and murder and whatever but maybe there are some other things like okay unleashing a vigilante would create Someone who was trying to equal that vigilante like Joker. And, you know, there just happened to be a real life example of that happening in the Middle East. So, again, I don't I don't think he's coming to any conclusions. No. Right. I'm not I don't think he's trying to say anything. I think he's just saying, hey, this is kind of (laughs) interesting. Well, it's it's interesting that he you know, he's obviously so committed to celluloid and he's so committed to practical effects and he's committed to using miniatures and stuff. So it's kind of ironic that Batman begins. I mean, it, it feels this way. I don't have proof that it's this way, but it feels like the most CGI heavy of the three films. It definitely feels that way, yes. It's, you can feel some like growing pains going on there where it's just like, all right, baby Nolan, he's still kind of, like you said, he's kind of figuring this out. He's figuring out how to work on this scale and he's probably relying a little bit too much on producers and, and Warner Brothers being like, yeah, yeah, why don't you just, we'll just do it in, in the computer. And then later on when he gets more power and more experience, he can start doubling down or, or committing more fully to the practical stuff because practical stuff is expensive. Fucking expensive yeah. to rig up a real semi-truck and flip it upside down, right? As opposed to just doing it in a computer. So, once he got to the point where he had more street cred then he actually could start blowing up things for real and shooting in real places and it's so much more satisfying that way though it man. truly is yeah so the first batman begins feels kind of jarringly cg heavy uh, particularly we get into the stuff that takes place in the narrows for example mm-hmm and so I find that stuff to be less interesting than the more sort of like grounded, tangible stuff that starts popping up in The Dark Knight. And it just it just feels like more of a ground level movie. You know, like the main villain is kind of just he's grungy. He, he carries knives around. He's it just somehow feels more tangible. And that's when I think Nolan is at his most successful. The best example being, of course, the uh, the famous rotating hallway in Inception. <laughs> sure. Which is extraordinarily yeah. effective because it's real. And they, you know, and they strapped that camera to that rotating hallway and they threw Joseph Gordon-Levitt against the walls. That brings me to, I kind of want to talk about how 
Nolan films action. Uh, there, there is a um, contingent of people who think that, that that is his blind spot, that he is not a good director of action. What do you think? I think he is not some action virtuoso in terms of just the pure, visceral, hand-to-hand combat. I think the way he films action on a story level and on a character level, plot level, is incredible. There's a specific kind of Nolan action scene, and you don't even realize you're in it until you know like a couple minutes in it just started it starts to crescendo and he just escalates and escalates and he has so many different little one-act plays going on in different parts of his world whether it's the driver of this truck that's that's escorting harvey dent across the town and and then you have like you know what are the orphans in, in dark knight rises any of these things where like there's four five six things going on at once and it's not like sort of random characters he actually gives personas to these people and so you sort of see the the results of the action happening in a way that most action scenes are very singular and very focused on one thing that's happening and he sort of gets to the civic large-scale level of these things and maybe you have some more insight into like how this filmmaking thing works but it feels unique i think he's at his best when he's providing scale and perspective. In other words, I think the closer he gets in with the hand-to-hand stuff, the more insecure he seems to be. When yes. he gets when he gets out further and you know, a great example is the fight at the end of the Dark Knight Rises between Batman and, and Bane and he 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 gets the camera back and he allows you to see like the steps of the courthouse and all the cops fighting in the background and when Bane swings and you know takes out the concrete on the column like that stuff works really well. It works better than the earlier backbreaking fight scene in the dark where the camera's just yeah. a little too close and he's just he's not John McTiernan, he's not Steven Spielberg. He just that's just not really his lane, that's not his strength. So I think he's better when he when he steps back a little bit, and that's why this I'm not the first person to say this. This is a relatively relatively well tread theory. He's better when he's doing like vehicles and stuff, right? He's better oh, yeah. like like the best action scene in Batman Begins is the chase, the tumbler chase. It's the be- it's the most exciting action scene in the movie for sure and that's and that's why dunkirk is such an unqualified success because he gets to just play with all these (laughs) huge vehicles right and that's really i think when he's at his best in terms of his his action proclivities Mm -hmm. so there's a really kind of goofy scene in um, the dark knight where batman goes to find eric roberts at this club and it's just just kind of an awkward little fight that he has with these mob thugs and it just doesn't really work and then he gets outside with eric roberts and he's sort of interrogating him and then he, he tosses him off the fire escape and it's a really fun reveal like it's a really effective moment because he pulls the camera back and you actually get to see eric roberts body fall off this thing so um <laughs> yeah. so yeah it, it, it is interesting that he kind of has a little bit of a reputation for not being a great action director considering the fact that he is considered <laughs> to be one of the great mainstream big budget filmmakers so like it's one of those things that he's not quite as interested in but there's there's quite a bit of gunplay in his film like there's a lot of gunplay in these dark knight movies there's a lot of gunplay in inception to be perfectly honest i just think it shows that it's it's really not about the spectacle that people come to see movies for right like it's it's about the character it's about the arc it's about the plot it's about the story and if that part is satisfying then the action is going to be elevated regardless right it's not to say he's not great at 
spectacle, which he is, and he edits action scenes spectacularly well. They have a feeling of largesse, like they, they feel epic. And part of that is Secret Weapon Hans Zimmer too. Yeah, let's talk about him. Um, I, you know, famously, I'm a I'm a total Zimmer file. Um, Zimmer he's head. probably my Zimmer head <laughs> Zimmerman. Yeah, after you know Ennio Morricone and John Williams, uh, which I think that would be unassailable one A and one B. Zimmer's got to be a very close second in terms of who I consider to be the most important mainstream film composers of all time. This is a situation where he actually collaborated on this score. He and James Newton Howard, which is just not somebody who I ever would have paired him up with. I don't know if that was Nolan's idea. I don't know if that was a Warner Brothers thing, but it's just they they have almost nothing in common in terms of their styles. And yet the score for the first two films in this trilogy are, are really wonderful. And I think I think the breakdown from the research that I've done is Zimmer's responsible for all the batman stuff. James Newton Howard is responsible for like the love theme, the Rachel Dawes stuff for the um, sure. the Harvey Dent stuff in The Dark Knight. So I think they broke it down that way. And then apparently once they get, this is kind of, kind of a cute story I was reading on Wikipedia, once they got around to The Dark Knight Rises, we're post-inception, right? And so they offered James Newton Howard the opportunity to collaborate again on the film. And he very humbly was just like, uh, I, I saw Inception. You guys are doing something really special together. Like you, <laughs> you guys clearly bring out the best in each other. You should just work together. I appreciate the offer, but like this is clearly, you know, a once in a lifetime bromance you have going on here and you guys should just do this together. <laughs> and I think that the score for The Dark Knight Rises is the best of the three scores. And what's what's interesting about Zimmer's approach, there isn't really a Batman theme. It's not no. like the Danny Elfman stuff is very hummable, right? Da na 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 but when you think about the Batman theme, it's more just like a rising note. It's just like, yeah, wah, wah. you know, it's, it's very, very inception actually. There isn't really like a hummable light motif there. And I think that's the right, I think that's the right move. And I, and I think all the Joker stuff is spectacular. Just the sort of queasy little score that happens every time. It's super effective. Very inspired by Trent Reznor. Apparently Zimmer's a big Nine Inch Nails guy. And he said he was very right. inspired by Trent Reznor's work. So and you, you can feel that right at the very beginning. Oh, that sure. just Like you said, that just queasy scratchy note before the um before the window explodes at the beginning mm-hmm. yeah uh, zimmer and nolan started working this is a uh, batman begins the first film that they worked on together they've made a, the, every movie since has been uh, composed by zimmer but interestingly he was so busy with dune that he was not able to take on tenet and oh, so he passed it off to this the kid who won uh, an oscar for black panther i'll look him up I, his name escapes oh. me but yeah it's crazy wow. that tenet's gonna be the first the first nolan movie without a zimmer score since batman begins and I, I just I so associate like my feelings about Nolan movies are so directly tied into my affection for the Zimmer scores. So mm-hmm. this this guy's got a, a lot of responsibility on his plate. But, oh you know, if it's good enough for Nolan, I guess he's got to be good enough for me. Wow. Zimmer choosing the uh, better filmmaker. That's crazy. <laughs> I think it was just a timing. I think it was just a timing thing. But um, I mean, I I always loved Zimmer and I knew who he was. And I, I, you know, obviously his work with Tony Scott was important to me. And, and, you know, his his work on Pirates of the Caribbean movies was always important to me. Like I always, you know, even going back to Rain Man or whatever, I always knew who he was. I always knew that I liked him. But once he started working with Christopher Nolan, he really found a different gear. Nolan really brought something else out of him. And he's, Mm -hmm. he just, totally leveled up once they started working together and honestly interstellar and, and inception those might be two of my favorite soundtracks of all time and i got a chance to go see him i got a chance to see him at the shrine auditorium and then i also got a chance to see him at coachella a number of years ago oh, i'm <laughs> jealous he, yeah. he performed live at coachella and it was amazing you know it's like it's probably it's like 8 30 at night the sun's just gone down he's on the outdoor stage 
And all of a sudden you just start hearing those inception tones wash over the polo fields <laughs> in the desert. It was really, really special. What was the crowd reaction at Coachella to Hans Zimmer playing? It was insane. You can, you can, he's, you can look it up on YouTube. There's a bunch of videos of that weekend and people fucking lost their minds. Honestly, the thing that I think people responded the most to was he did a little uh, Lion King medley. Okay. <laughs> The uh, the Inception stuff went over really well. He you know he closed with Time, the last song from Inception. Yeah, um, yeah. And he did Pirates of the Caribbean medley, and he did a, like a Da Vinci Code. You know he, he he played the hits, but I think the Lion King was the one that really got people's attention, and it probably <laughs> just is totally tied into the the age range of the kind of people oh, who were of course who were there. But it was it was a really fun show. I mean, he, it's just so funny to see him out there just like a fucking rock star with his electric guitar. It was it was great. He's got this whole orchestra and all these uh, chorus singers and um, woman playing like. The electric cello and stuff. It was just mm-hmm. a really, it was just a fun show. <laughs> like the Coachella sets, you've been there before. Those are always very truncated. They're always very short. They're usually less than an yeah. hour because they have so many acts. Mm-hmm. The Shrine Auditorium show was like a full two and a half hour, full interstellar medley and stuff like, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, awesome. stuff like that. Crimson Tide. Anyway, that was my Zimmer tangent. Uh, I love what he does with Nolan, but these are not amongst my favorite of his scores. I think that honestly, the Bane, I think the Bane stuff, the Bane theme or whatever you want to call it, might be my favorite piece of music in this series. It's it's really unique and interesting and strong. This, the, the hard thing here is, God, how much ink has been spilt over the Batman movies? How much discussion online has happened with the Batman movies? So we, we don't want to go over stuff that everyone's been talking about for years. I, I think these films are really interesting. I just don't find them quite as rewatchable and revisitable as some of my other favorite Nolan movies, but I do think that they're asking that they're some of his deepest movies. The problem with The Dark Knight is it's just so head and shoulders above the other two. Like, it's just so, it's just such a better movie that it really, it kind of eclipses the other two. And, and you know, that's a great problem to have as a filmmaker. The second time out of the gate, once you kind of got it figured out that you fucking nail it. I mean, you can't understate what an incredible phenomenon that movie was. I mean, that movie changed so many things. That movie changed the Oscars, you know? It, yeah. It changed mainstream cinema. It you know, made over Bill dollars. It was a legitimate phenomenon. I remember going to see it at like 2.30 in the morning or whatever because everything was sold out up until that point. I remember like coming out of the theater at the Arclight in LA and seeing a bunch of my friends who were like going into the four o'clock show like it everybody was doing it that summer you know like we said before it came out the same summer as as iron man did so you could look at that as kind of like the turning point year i got to see dark knight at a press screening a few days before it opened i felt real special for a couple (laughs) days i don't think you can discount how much easier it is to make the middle part of a trilogy right you don't have to set it up and you don't have to conclude it it's sort of the empire strikes back thing sure 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 i'll buy that yeah and that movie absolutely hits the ground running and it doesn't it doesn't feel the need to have an easy conclusion i mean it is a quite a bit of a cliffhanger. Self-contained, it does finish in a satisfying manner for sure. And even then, like you've talked about, I, I do think the weakest part of that movie is sort of the climax, the yeah. the fa- fairy stuff and the, and the skyscraper stuff. I find the fairy thing to be a little bit interminable because by that point in the movie and there's just so goddamn much going on, you're just like, oh yeah, that's right, we gotta do the fucking fairy bullshit. I mean, it's it's important ideologically and I understand why he wants to explore that, but just from some sort of like a narrative standpoint in terms of fatigue, I mean, it's not a short movie. By the time you get to the fairy stuff and there's all this stuff going on in the building, it's like, oh man, there's a little too mon- too many slices of meat on this sandwich. Like, I wish we could scale it back ever so slightly. And then, like I said, The Dark Knight rises, triples down on that, which is why the ending of that movie is is problematic for me. Yeah, I don't think The Dark Knight is a perfect film, but it is unbelievably successful. You know, I, I honestly, I think that it really peaks 
right about the halfway point. The progression from Harvey Dent turning himself in and then the car chase and then the truck flipping and then uh, the interrogation with the Joker and then blowing up Maggie Gyllenhaal and and the Joker, you know, escaping and him hanging his head out of the police car. Like that, to me, that's really when the movie is flying, right? Like it just oh, yeah. can't, that, that level of euphoria at that point in the movie is just, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate it and directly responsible for the direction that the James Bond franchise decided to go after that. I mean, Skyfall is 100% a reaction to The Dark Knight. Sam Mendes has said as much. I don't know if it was the right move. I have my issues with where the James Bond franchise has gone over the couple of the last the last film in particular. But, you know, mm-hmm. Nolan famously a big Bond guy. It's so interesting that he rips off Bond movies so much and yet his films became so influential, particularly The Dark Knight, that he started influencing his beloved Bond franchise. <laughs> And in The Dark Knight Rises, he completely rips off the opening of License to Kill, of all movies. I mean, that the thing with the plane is a, is a direct lift from License to Kill. I was going to say, once we get into Inception, then obviously there's a lot of On Her Majesty's Secret Service DNA in that movie. But we'll get to it. Our wet dream for years has been for Nolan to do a Bond movie, but he doesn't need to. He just makes he makes his own Bond movies, right? The Dark Knight looms large in the cultural consciousness, and it is the best of the three. Probably should have been nominated for Best Picture. Ledger famously won a posthumous Oscar, which and it was quite moving to see his his family members come up to the Oscar stage to accept that for him. It's the first Batman movie that doesn't feature the word Batman in the title, which I think is very intentional. And Bale and Nolan have referenced the fact that they really wanted this series to kind of be their own. They didn't really want to be compared to previous Batman movies, and so they made a, a structural decision there that I think was the right one. I find The Dark Knight Rises to be kind of a clunky title, but I understand that it's sort of inevitable after you've planted your flag <laughs> there, right? Yeah. I was struck this time watching it and realizing how horny The Dark Knight Rises is compared to yeah. really all of Nolan's films, but particularly the first two films in the trilogy. Like, he gets he gets laid twice in this movie. I mean, I guess you you presume that that he's he's betting down with Anne Hathaway. I guess you don't really see it, but there's a legitimate sex scene with Marion Cotillard, and I always kind of think of Christopher Nolan as being a little bit chaste, like being a yeah. little bit of a prude when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I was struck by the fact that, that Bruce Wayne gets laid multiple times in this movie, which I thought was refreshing. 2012, same year as Les Miserables. So she also, she wins her Oscar this same year. And then she does Interstellar two years after that. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about this a lot, but I really love Nolan's commitment to and faithfulness to his repertory players. Famously, Michael Caine's been in every Nolan film, including Dunkirk, since Batman Begins. And I just, I love bringing Christian Bale back, obviously working with Anne Hathaway a couple times. I I love his faithfulness. Oh, and he's bringing Martin Donovan back for Tenet, which I'm so excited about because he was in, he's 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 just one of my favorite character actors and he's in Insomnia. Killian Murphy in all three Batman movies plus, yeah. It's really wonderful. (laughs) His his scenes, I mean, he only gets, you know, he obviously doesn't do very much in the second and third one, but he, he's always a, such a scene stealer. Like he's really funny <laughs> in all three of these movies. Scarecrow was always my favorite. I mean, I'm not a comic book guy, but I watched, you know, I watched the animated series and stuff in yeah. the nineties. And I always loved the Scarecrow. Scarecrow for some reason was always my favorite Batman villain. And I was so excited when I found out that they were finally getting around to the Scarecrow this time. I feel like he's a little bit of an undercooked villain in Batman Begins, but I do love the design of the character. And I love all the stuff about fear and his interactions with Tom Wilkinson are, are really great. But yes, Killian Murphy, there you go. Killian Murphy and Michael Caine. Those are like the two through lines 
They're the, they're mm-hmm. the guys that he can even find a way to squeeze into something like Dunkirk, right? And yeah. it doesn't feel jarring. Absolutely. Um, and then he also does this thing, which which is really funny and really specific to him, and I and I absolutely love it. There is this unofficial, ongoing Christopher Nolan reclamation project where he grabs actors that he clearly loved from films that have been important to him, and he pulls them out of obscurity and drops them into these significant roles. And I'm thinking about Rutger Hauer in Batman Begins. I'm thinking about Eric Roberts in The Dark Knight. <laughs> and I'm thinking about Matthew Modine in the Dark Knight Rises, yeah, or you know Tom Berenger in, in Inception. I just I love that he that he continues to do this. Now it seems like he's kind of doing it with with Kenneth Branagh now. Not that Kenneth Branagh has ever fallen into obscurity, but Nolan's relationship with actors I, I find quite interesting, and it seems like they're pretty committed to him, uh, which is a testament to uh, how much they respect him. Matt, we're gonna have a lot more Nolan stuff to talk about, uh, but I feel good I feel good about ripping the Band-Aid off with uh, with Batman as a nice little introduction mm-hmm. um, because after this uh we probably don't need to talk about the batman movies really ever again (laughs) this is the final word on the dark knight trilogy um no i was very much looking forward to this like i said not amongst my favorite nolan movies but boy, i'll tell you what easy watches man if you want to keep up with us through this series our next installment we'll be covering following memento insomnia and the prestige flash forward to july we'll cover interstellar inception dunkirk and hopefully fingers crossed tenant i believe it it'll happen in the meantime uh, thank you so much for listening if you haven't figured it out yet uh, we like movies but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing so if you like what you heard please consider rating reviewing and subscribing to this podcast on all of the various podcatchers drop us a line at wlmpodcast at gmail.com follow us on all the socials at wlmpodcast if you have the means and want to uh, help us keep the lights on at WLMHQ, consider uh, visiting welikemovies.com and clicking on the donation page. Spread the word, tell your friends, help us keep the conversation going. For Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knudsen, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... One out of two Batsuit nipples. Nipples.